Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our seventh podcast in our series on the second half of world history. In podcast number six, we started the Enlightenment, looking at how it was the first influential movement in the print era. We looked at how one particular type of business enterprise would help to facilitate the and the Enlightenment and its ideas, that of course being the coffee house. We looked at the primary product to come out of the Enlightenment, of course that being the encyclopedia. And we also looked at religion in the Enlightenment in the sense of the relationship between Christianity and Islam. We then looked at society in the age of the Enlightenment with the rise of what we would become to know as the social sciences. So in our seventh podcast recorded today, we're going to expand on the motivation, as we talked about in the sixth podcast, on the debut of these subjects that will be known under the umbrella term of the social sciences. If we recall, the goal of the social sciences was to end human cruelty, end the motivation and the reasons why humans go to war with one another by discovering, perhaps similar to what the physical world has been able to discover using the exact scientists, might there be social discoveries that would help to end cruelty and violence in human society? So as we begin, we're going to look at today the primary role of one particular in individual in the field we might call sociology and the physiocrats, as well as the impact of Adam Smith and Montesquieu. And then finally, ending with a discussion on the impact of Frederick the Great of Prussia. So looking at, again, our debuting subjects here in the social sciences, the first individual we want to take a look at is Shazare Bakaria, who lived from 1738 to 1794. He, of course, did not invent the idea or the concept of what we call laws or a law laws in society. Rather, Beccaria is asking the question, if there's a more logical way to implement the law or for the purpose of the law. And he goes to argue that the purpose of law is not to impose the will of God. It's not to impose a statewide or nationwide religion. In fact, law should not even overlap with the idea of God or religion. Rather, law should be established to secure peace for the largest segment of society. And I emphasize those last four words, largest segment of society. The reason being, and the genius behind Beccaria, is he is one of the first human thinkers to realize 
that no one set of laws is going to be able to secure peace for everyone. No one set of laws is going to keep everyone happy. So to keep a relatively calm society, enact the laws, write the laws that appeal to the largest segment of society. And the key way of doing that is to establish this sense of security within a given population. Out of his writings and thinking will develop a group called the physiocrats. The physiocrats, their emphasis was that the primary role of government was to protect property and people's freedom to use it. Remember the time we're talking about here, the early to mid 1700s. Let's just kick up the timeline less than a quarter century. So now we're into the 1770s. And let's get out of Europe and go to a British colony in North America where a group of rebels is getting real tired of being ruled by a foreign monarch. And there's one individual that'll be the youngest of a group known as the Founding Fathers of America who is going to take physiocratic thinking and put that right into arguably one of the most famous pieces of literature or writing on a single page of parchment. That being, of course, the Declaration of Independence. Let's go back again, just a quick review what the physiocrats' goal was. The primary role of government was to protect property and people's freedom to use it. Phrased another way, that the role of government is to allow people the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those essentially are the physiocratic's goals written in another way. The whole idea of that famous phrase, pursuit of happiness, admittedly, since the American Revolution and the founding fathers later on creation of the Constitution of the United States, the pursuit of happiness was later mythically interpreted as those that people should be simply allowed to do whatever they want, whenever they want, without any kind of government supervision, much less interference. And that had nothing to do with it. Pursuit of happiness was a long way of putting succinctly the idea of owning land. That's all that meant. Is What Jefferson was saying is that we should have a preservation of our own lives, of course, and the government should help to protect that. So life, liberty, meaning freedom, but freedom to do what? Pursuit of happiness, to own land. Remember that the entire revolutionary period in America and its subsequent days of writing the Constitution of the United States, all of that is happening pre-industrial society. The Industrial Revolution has not happened yet. Therefore, one's wealth was directly tied to the property that one owned. We don't have, in the days of the pre-capitalist societies, pre-industrial societies, you do not have individuals like the Bill Gates or the Warren Buffetts running around with unbelievable gobs of liquid wealth available to them or tied up in assets around the world. Not at all. In pre-industrial societies, your richest person in society, by and large, had no more than five times the liquid wealth as the poorest person in society. Wealth was tied to land. Somebody loses their land or has a th or threatens to have their land taken from them is going to be a cause of insurrection. 
Government needs to be established to give people the confidence that they can own their land free and clear, especially once the loan or the mortgage is paid. So let's take Beccaria along with the physiocrats and dovetail that with arguably one of the most famous economists to come along, ironically enough, in the exact same time period, 1723 to 1790, the life of none other than Adam Smith. In his book, the most famous perhaps of his writing called The Wealth of Nations, no surprise that that was written in the iconic year in America, in American history, of none other than 1776. Smith's central tenets or arguments was number one, to abolish mercantilist ideas. Remember, mercantilism, simply put, is an all or nothing economic model or economic thinking, that a country is considered sufficient if it grows and or produces everything that it needs, anything above and beyond that, the country simply would not get or would not need. If it produces everything its country people need, its citizens need, that's the cake. Remember the icing on the cake or the ability to eat that cake is they produce so much that they not only meet their own country's needs, but they actually export extras, which then brings in revenue. The very model of success in any mercantilist society means that one country's success is going to come at the expense of another country who needs to buy those exports. Inherently, that model is fatalistic. It's not going to work, especially in a region of countries that have very, very close ties and borders. Therefore, as Adam Smith says, get rid of this mercantilist idea. Again, as he said, because it hinders expansion of wealth and even hinders production. All right, Smith, what's your idea then? What's your replacement for that? And he goes on to say that the key to expanding any individual economy is to let the citizens of any one country pursue their own wants, needs, and goods, and businesses would respond in order to stay in business. Let me unpack that. Letting individuals in other words, no government mandate, no government direction, no government quotas. Let individuals pursue their own wants, their own needs, buy whatever goods they feel they need or want from the businesses that offer the best deal. That inherently will force competitor businesses to do what they need to do to stay in business. Now, while that can certainly seem to be a Mr. Rogers uh, land of make-believe type idea, because certainly there can be corruption even within that model, what Smith is arguing is that by and large, you have the best potential for a future peaceful economic system, and by extension, a peaceful group of citizens or country. The reason being is imagine just this simple example. Imagine that you're in the middle of a meeting and there's a break and everybody's allowed for 15 to 20 minutes to go out and get some kind of refreshment, whether it be a bottle of water or a pop or maybe a coffee, a snack from it. And the only items available to you are through vending machines. Now imagine that as you're walking out, in your mind, you have, I'm just going to use this as an example, you really like XYZ's bottled water. It tastes great. The price is competitive, meaning it's only a dollar for a bottle. 
You'd actually like the its company logo on the front. It's just it's just your go-to when you have the choice of bottled water. Are there competitors out there? Sure there are, and there's going to be in that vending machine. But you like company X's because why? Again, it's only a dollar. Now imagine you approach that vending machine to get that bottle of water. And while you're about to put the dollar in, you put it in, you press the buttons to have that bottle drop down, but nothing happens. You punch the buttons again and nothing happens. So you look over at the little LED screen and the letters are coming out that you don't have the sufficient funds to buy that bottle of water. And you think to myself, no, no, no. You think to yourself, no, I, I know Company X's bottle of water. It's a dollar. So you look closely and you realize that that bottle of water now costs $3. $3. Wait a minute. Has every bottle of water gone up and you look at the rest of its competitors? Nope. They're all still roughly a dollar. Some are maybe 75 cents, some are a dollar and a quarter, but close enough. But suddenly the one you really liked is $3. Are you going to get two more dollars out to buy that bottle of water that used to cost a dollar? Or suddenly are you interested now in that company's competitors because of the price? You see, competition in a capitalistic society is going to eliminate that company from attempting to price gouge. Sure, they can try it, but they're going to find themselves most likely with a massive amount of assets and goods that simply aren't being sold. The fact that there's competitors out there is going to force them to keep their price competitive and the quality of their products competitive. In other words, what we're pulling out of Enlightenment thinkers throughout the 1700s that will be culminated into two famous documents in a newly formed United States of America called the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. The common denominator between a future democratic society and in a capitalistic industrial society, the common denominator between capitalism and democracy, the bedrock common denominator, is that the people living under those systems, the common denominator is their ability to choose. Their ability to choose. Ladies and gentlemen, being a leader of a country, I cannot fathom what that's like. I have no idea what it would be like to be a president, heck, much less even a governor or a local mayor. But the thought of having or allowing your entire population you're responsible for complete freedom of choice under your economic and political system, sure, that would be very, very nerve-wracking. But as Beccaria, the physiocrats, and Adam Smith are all going to argue, along with eventually Montesquieu and even Frederick the Great, is that the ability to choose is going to give the population the best chance for a future peace. In capitalism, again, our ability to choose whatever product we want, do not take that for granted. I remember one time a student arriving at DePaul University from another country. I'm just going to label it as another country. I'm not even going to give the region. But that country did not enjoy the freedom of their economy. The student came from a dictatorship in terms of their political system. And let's just say it wasn't a capitalist society. 
their government determined how many products of everything were produced within a given time frame. The people's ability to choose was practically null and void. And that student came up to me and said, Mr. Kinsella, a couple of days ago, I had a headache, a bad headache, and somebody gave me a medication for it, and it went away in about a half hour. Do you have some of those? Do you have that a bottle of pills like that? And I asked the student, well, what, what do you mean? What, what, what kind of, what was the name of it? Oh, it, what, what does it mean? What do you mean? What was the name of it? It doesn't matter. Just give me the pills to get rid of a headache. I said, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't, I need to know what the name of it is. I have one bottle that I use, but that may not be the right bottle. How could it not be the right bottle? It either gets rid of headaches or it doesn't. You see the confusion here, listeners. So I asked this, you really can't remember what the name of it was. Well, hold on. You know, now that you mentioned it, now I don't remember the name, but I know it started with an A. So can you get, do you have those pills that begin with an A? I said, actually, I don't. I have something that begins with an M, Motrin. Now, bottles of pills that help to get rid of pain, aches, and headaches that begin with an A, you need to do a little better than that because we have aspirin, we had Advil, Aleve, and even a few others. The look of confusion on the student's face was priceless. And I don't mean that in a positive way. I don't mean that as, as, a, as a knock against that person either. They were coming from and living as under an economy in a country where you did not have choices. So I told the student, follow me across the street to a local drugstore and let's see if you recognize the bottle. As we were walking down the first aisle of that drugstore, I turned to the student and said, here's your medications for all the pains, aches. Wait a minute. Where did the student go? I walked back a few steps and I looked down the aisle and the student is on their knees. I'm purposely not even getting into gender here, so I apologize when I'm using they. But the student was on his or her knees looking at something that caught their attention on the shelves. And I quickly walk over there and I ask what's wrong. And the student looked up at me with tears in their eyes and said, look at this. Look at all of this bread you can buy. You have different flavors of bread, but more importantly, you can see through the bread, the cellophane or this bag, it's clear. You know if the, if, if, if the bread is fresh or at least you have an idea. I said, well, right, but we also have the expiration date. What's that? You see in this person's country, when they bought a bag of anything, they really didn't know what they were getting until they got home. There was no opening it up and going through it to see if it was fresh. That was simply unheard of. You were lucky to find a product of anything still on the shelves by midday, much less the end of the day. So again, for my listeners living in a capitalistic democracy, please never take for granted the freedoms that we have, but don't forget as well that the freedoms that we do have makes our systems work. You might say, wait a minute, Chris, open your eyes. Look at, look at Washington, D.C. You have protesters in front of the White House in front of the Capitol. You have them in front of the United States Supreme Court. Sure you do. And you have them throughout the state capitals around the United States. Heck, in my town of Stowe, Ohio, you, you find protesters in front of City Hall on the weekends every now and then. But that, again, is what makes our system work. They have the freedom to express themselves. 
That's the key difference. We are approaching our 250th anniversary soon, a country that's 250 years old, and we have only had one major civil conflict, a civil war. In the history of countries throughout world history, we are long well behind the average of the number of civil wars that we actually should have if we were like the norm. A key part of the reason why we don't or why we've had just one is because of the very reason that so many people say is what's wrong with our society. We are a mixed ethnic, mixed religious group of people. That mixture actually adds to the peace rather than adds to the tension. So that's Adam Smith, a lot to unpack with him. The next individual within this enlightenment period that we'll talk about is Montesquieu. Montesquieu in his writing said that no single set of laws will ever be a panacea, will ever be a cure-all to an entire, entire population at all times and at all places. Let me repeat that. No single set of laws will be a panacea for a whole population at all times and all places. Now, why you might be confusing, you're giving me the, the hairy eyeball there, the squinting look and saying, okay, Chris, if you understand that, then maybe you're drinking the same stuff Montesquieu is drinking. Well, bear with me a moment. Think about this. No country's laws will be a cure-all to everybody at every time and at every possible place within that country. That genius of thinking is what the founding fathers cherry-picked as they wrote the Constitution of the United States. And therein lies its genius. To prove it, how many actual constitutions have we had in our country's 240-plus year history? One. Just one. Sure, we've amended it well over 20 times. We've amended it. But that's not taking it up, tearing it up, and starting over again. We've never needed to do that. Heck, there's a country in Europe alone that has had five constitutions just in the 20th century. We're still on the same one. There's no country on earth that has an older working national constitution that is older than ours. But the genius there was in the ambiguity of Montesquieu's statement, which he they then reflected into the Constitution itself. Sure, that, can, that ambiguity, that lack of clear decisiveness is confusing to modern-day lawmakers. It's been ever since the Founding Fathers wrote it. But that was their genius. Take a quick example. Think about for a moment what it takes to impeach a president of the United States. What does the Constitution say? Very, very little, bare bones. You ready for this? A president of the United States can be impeached for treason. Now, there is a specific one. But beyond that, high crimes. Okay, well, doesn't that kind of go with treason? Sure. Okay, now, Chris, that's pretty specific. Yeah. Way to get to the last part of that phrase, the third tenant. Yeah. So we have treason, high crimes, ready for this, or misdemeanors. Wait a minute. So you're saying a president can be impeached from what is considered a high crime all the way over to the other side of the spectrum for a misdemeanor? 
What does that mean? Asked the Founding Fathers. Whatever you want it to mean, at whatever time, you have to ask the question. In other words, the Founding Fathers left it to future generations of Americans to determine what that meant. It would not be until our 17th President of the United States, Andrew Johnson, that the, that the lawmakers of the day thought that what the Founding Fathers meant by high crimes and misdemeanors was that a President of the United States cannot fire a cabinet member without Senator, without Senate approval. Johnson thought he could and tried to. The Senate said no. The House of Representatives impeached him based on that interpretation. The Senate voted as well on removal from office, and one single vote kept Johnson in office. To them, to those legislators in the 1860s, that's what that phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, went. Now let's race all the way through the rest of the 1800s, well through almost all of the 1900s, to the almost the end of it to 1998, December, when President Bill Clinton was told by the House of Representatives that high crimes and misdemeanors means you cannot lie under oath, even if you're a sitting president. We race forward 18 more years to the presidency of Donald Trump, where right before he is out of office, even after being elected out of office, he will be impeached for a second time, our only president of the United States, to actually be impeached twice, yet never removed from office. And the grounds there is what they thought was conspiring with a foreign power to dig up mud on a one of Trump's political opponents. That was the first one. The second one, did he cause the insurrection on the infamous day of January 6, 2021. You see, each generation of legislators will determine what those founding fathers meant, even though it was written well over two centuries prior. The genius of Montesquieu was reflected through our founding fathers' writings. The last part of Montesquieu's writing, too, was the belief that monarchs, that the kings and queens of Europe, should be subjected to constitutional limits. You can understand why Montesquieu wasn't exactly on the Christmas card list of all the popular kings and queens throughout Europe. Of course not. They don't want to have their hands tied. Yet from Montesquieu, we will get what comes to be known as the constitutional monarchy, a monarchy that is limited by a constitution. That's Montesquieu's genius. And our final discussion here as we round off this Age of the Enlightenment discussion is the impact of Frederick the Great of Prussia, who reigned from 1740 to 1786. In his two central gifts that he left to future generations of rulers throughout the world was that number one is the establishment of the freedom of religion. You want to secure peace in society? Get rid of state-mandated or nation-mandated religions. And even more importantly, get it out of the office. In other words, that politicians should not pound their chests about what religion they are affiliated with. 
and how important was that central tenet of his writings. The second part of it had nothing to do with religion, but would become the bane of future societies until we're reminded just how important this element of government is, and it's called a bureaucracy. He established a bureaucracy that would endure, a group of state workers that would be employed for as long as they wanted to work and as long as they were doing a good job, they would work regardless of which popular or unpopular politician or king or queen was in office at a given time. Ladies and gentlemen, as much as we despise that idea of bureaucracy, we associate it with the term red tape. Believe it or not, without the bureaucrats in our own American society, much less that of any developed nation around the world, our nation, our progress would ground to a halt. Think about what went on, for example, in the United States when the 46th president was taking the oath of office on January 20th, 2021. Within a matter of 12 hours, every belonging of the 45th president and his wife was taken away from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to the location of his and his wife's choosing and then everything of President Biden and his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, was then put in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue exactly as they had hoped it would be. It is the bureaucracy that does things like that, that keeps our stoplights working, that keaps the electricity running. The bureaucrats, this whole idea that from the French word bureau or drawer is which, again, keeps our society humming and ticking along. So that's, again, what end our discussion on the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment thinkers of the day. When we come back, we're going to see that while the Enlightenment was clearly welcomed by the founding fathers and thinkers of a newly formed United States of America, let's just say that Enlightenment thinking wasn't exactly as welcome as the founding fathers embraced it. In other places around the world, one in particular, Enlightenment thinking was going to pave the way for another political revolution similar to that of the American Revolution, but unlike a peaceful ending by and large that happened in the United States, this one would kill people numbering in the millions. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe, have a great week, and we'll see you for the next podcast as we begin, you guessed it, the French Revolution. See you then.